Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good. Um, before I get started, I just want to just stop and pray real quick. So, Father, we come to you right now and we give the remainder of the service to you. Whatever comes out of my mouth, I pray that it would be what you would want to come out. Um, not my own agenda, not my own personal opinions, but what you would want spoken tonight. Um, I just pray that every heart would be an open heart and every ear would be a listening ear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so um, we have been going through 1 Samuel. Um, tonight we'll be in 1 Samuel 18. I won't be covering the entire chapter. I'll be covering the first 11 verses. Um, but just as a refresher, last week um, David took on Goliath and with his... Uh, powerful rock and <laughs> slingshot, and he took care of business, cut its head off, and uh, that is a quick and, and uh, dirty version of last week. So I just want to, what I'm going to do is read through the scripture tonight, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to talk uh, first about Saul, and then I'm going to talk about Jonathan. So it's going to be a um, kind of reverse in the way that scripture plays out for these first um, 11 verses. So, starting in uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed that pact by giving, or by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, women from all towns of Israel came out and, to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David for ten thousands and me with only thousands? Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. That very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand, and suddenly he hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. So that's as far as I'm going to read tonight, and now I'm going to return to the portion of Scripture where we start talking about Saul and um, his reaction to the Israelites um, and how they treated David after this victory. So first of all, in verse 7, we have Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. So David suddenly becomes unexpectedly popular. 
When the people of Israel started singing, everyone knew that David was more popular than Saul. He had just killed this big giant. It was refreshed, and it was fresh in everybody's mind. And they're like, here's our big hero. Here's the man of the hour. And it's the women and, you know, of all the villages are coming out and singing this song. It's like the number one hit in Israel. It's like that stupid Applebee's song I can't stand <laughs> that I turn on <laughs> and it's on the radio. And Saul is like, oh, this one again. Um, but uh, when, when it happens in all the cities of Israel, it's not, it doesn't talk about one city. It talks about every city they went to that uh, these women were just coming out and singing. I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting. So <laughs> when you are praised and popular, it isn't wise to let it go to your head. David was happy to hear these affirming words, but he didn't let it dominate his thinking or change his opinion of himself. So David, before this, he was a lowly shepherd, you know? He just happened on the battlefield one day to take care of business. He didn't hear this song these women were singing and think, well, I'm a pretty big deal, you know? I'm pretty important right now. He had that humble heart of a shepherd. Because David could be so content and happy before the Lord in keeping, with, in keeping sheep with no praise or popularity, it put his heart in the right place to handle it, and he, received, he was able to receive that praise and popularity with the right heart. Out in the shepherd's field, David had his heart set, I am doing this for the Lord. I love the Lord, and my reward is from him. I remember, and, and uh, Brian had mentioned this before, and there's been seasons in my life, uh, you know, when I've helped with the recovery groups, and I would get frustrated because things weren't going the way I wanted them to go, and I would think, what am I doing this for? Am I doing it? you know, because I want to look good. Am I doing it for the right reasons? And I remember Brian telling me we were in his uh, driveway once because I just felt like beaten down because I was doing all this stuff and it seemed like nobody really cared that I was doing it. And I remember Brian telling me, if you do anything without, with any other motive than because you love Jesus, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And that hit me hard that day. And that's something I try to remember now. And that's the, that's the reason David did what he did, because he loved God. He didn't think, oh, it's going to make me popular to kill this giant. I'm going to be the person everybody talks about. Women are going to sing about me in every city we go to. That's not why he did it. He did it because he was obedient to God. But we see Saul has a very different reaction. In verse 8, this made Saul very angry. So if you've been reading along, you know that Saul is having a hard time right now. Um, this little young shepherd boy walks off and is looking at sheep and suddenly kills this big enemy that has been stalking them, and he looks pretty cool right now. So it made Saul very angry. It made Saul very jealous. At this point, Saul, he doesn't have a right or close relationship with the Lord. All he had to affirm was the praise of man. So he was going off the praise of man, and suddenly he only slaves a thousand 
but David slays 10,000. David's more popular than me. It's a bad sign when a leader, in a leader, when they resent or feel threatened by the success of a subordinate. It's a certain sign of weakness in a leader. I know for me, when I've coached guys in powerlifting, I'm not an official coach. I'm not licensed. I do it for free. And that's not, don't come up to me afterwards. <laughs> um, but there's this little guy that I coach. And I call him little because he's under 160 pounds. He's 160 pounds. He's maybe five, seven, maybe. Maybe that's it. He deadlifts 440 pounds. I'm 242 pounds. I only deadlift 505 pounds. <laughs> this young man can deadlift over, what is that, three times his weight? And I do my math right, where I'm oh, just above two. I could easily be upset and say, I'm your coach. I should be doing better than you. You suck. Go away. <laughs> but I'm happy. I'm happy that this man can do this. And I don't sit there and say, well, he did it because of me. I know he did it because of his hard work. I know it's because he listened, and I know it's because he's consistent. I could easily say, well, he's lifting more than me. I'm going to go coach somebody else that's doing horribly so I can look better. Uh, but I don't do that. I find happiness in his success. We can't, Saul's not happy. He's not happy in David's success. He's very upset. He's very jealous. We continue in verse 8, and Saul's thinking, thinks, now they will be making him their king. Saul could have thought, hey, David did well, and he has his glory today. I'll keep serving the Lord and have this kind of praise another day. No, his immediate thought is, now everybody's against me. Now they'll be making David their king. Instead, he overreacted. He overreacted, and there's another dynamic at work. There's this guilty conscience. conscience. He remembered the prophet Samuel told him back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 26, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul knew that his sin disqualified him from being king, and he clung to the throne with the energy of his flesh. Now, if someone came up to me and said, you know, God wants you to stop doing this, you should stop doing it, I, I would probably rise up with a little, no, I'm doing a good job, you know, impossible. But an honorable man, and I'm not honorable sometimes, so an honorable man would step down. He wouldn't be in this mess. Instead, Saul constantly worried, when will God cast me off the throne? Who will he raise up to replace me? This insecurity, born of guilt, also made Saul overreact to the praise and popularity that was given to David. But as you remember, they still praised Saul. They still gave Saul some credit. They said Saul has slain his thousands, but Saul didn't hear that. He just heard, this person's doing better than me. This person's a threat to my throne. So we continue in verse 8. Saul kept a jealous eye on David. He began to hear almost everything David did with suspicious ears, with a suspicious eyes. He looked at David's actions and everything seemed suspicious. Even though 
David was just, you know, he's just the shepherd boy that suddenly had this great wave of popularity, and I'm sure it wasn't his intention to make somebody else look bad. In all of this, Saul was blaming David for his own failures. He twisted it around. He's like, it's David's fault that I'm not successful because he's overshadowing me. David was doing nothing but the Lord's work, and Saul saw him as a threat because of it. I've been reading a lot of books lately, and I came across this passage in a book that I'm reading right now called Letting Go, The Pathway of Surrender, and it talks about blame. Blame is the world's greatest escape. It enables us to remain limited and small without feeling guilty. But there is a cost, the loss of our freedom. Also, the role of the victim brings with it a self-perception of weakness, vulnerability, and helplessness. Saul was so lost in his animosity and suspicion, he made himself small and weak as a result of making himself the victim. Now, um, I'm going to share a little bit of a personal story. Um, a few years ago, uh, 2012, 2015, I was involved in this church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, it was actually a cult and finally got out of it. But in the process of me being in this church for three years, I gave three years of my income to this church. My full income. We're talking like, you know, a lot of money. Um, and coming out of that cult, I kind of wore this tag as a victim, and I said, I don't have to give anything to the church anymore because I gave $300,000 to God. <laughs> I'm good for the rest of my life. I gave it to this cult. And I wore that like, well, you know, and uh, I would give to refuge here and there, and it, was, it wasn't anything consistent. And I would always use that. I would blame that situation of me being a victim and being taken advantage of by this church that has nothing to do with refuge, this church down in Cincinnati. And I would use that excuse. Um, and I've been going through, the, since July, I've been going through some pretty intense therapy to go through past some past traumas and take care of this business. And with that, I've been able to listen to the voice of God more clearly, and God started dealing with my heart, and talk, you know, started saying, you need to give regularly to the church, you need to give regularly to the church, and I do not subscribe to the prosperity gospel at all, which is if I give to you, God, you're going to give me stuff. I don't believe that. I believe I should just obey God, and what happens, happens. However, last Tuesday, I decided to start giving to the church on a regular basis, and Thursday, I was offered a promotion at work. So it's not a prosperity gospel. I'm not subscribing to it. I'm just saying, if you obey God, God's going to take care of you. All right, so we're going to move on. My blame limited me for so many years. So I just want us to, to soak in that for a minute. Is there something in your past that you're still blaming that's labeling you helpless, that's labeling you a victim. You're labeling yourself that way and you, you're just stuck and you can't get over it. Keep those, that kind of thinking in your mind as we continue. A tormenting spirit from God in verse 10. A tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in the house like a madman. 
Now, I found this verse interesting. Tormenting spirit from God. Some versions say an evil spirit from God. Um, and as I researched it more and more, it's more the, um, the idea that God finally gives you over to your own devices. This tormenting spirit was first mentioned in 1 Samuel 16, 14. It came upon Saul permitted by the Lord. When the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, David was brought into Saul's royal court to play music so that Saul would be ministered to and soothed when suffering from the tormenting spirit. In the second half of the scripture, it says, and he began to rave in the house like a madman. So some of the versions say prophesy, and I thought that's weird too. Why would he prophesy? But basically, he's basically just gone back crazy. <laughs> he's just like raving, like, oh, I'm never gonna be king, blah, blah, blah. He's just, he's going through a psychotic break Maybe that's, that's the better way of describing it. But he just babbled like a man that was out of his mind. So what does it mean when it talks about a tormenting spirit? Like I said, I believe it is God gave him over to his selfishness, to his devices. And I can give you another example of this. I was... In 2017, just going through a very dark period, um, my drinking was out of control. Um, I was coming to church, but I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, and I pretty much decided, I'm going to do what's best for me. I'm just going <laughs> to destroy my life, which I thought was best for me, right? I'm going to have fun. Um, and God said, fine. You see how that helps you. You see how that gets you what you want and where you want in life. I will let you go ahead and run your life. You let me know how that works out. 2017, the fall of 2017, the big rainstorm right before Irma um, came along. Um, I had gone out and drank that night, very heavily drove home, sideswiped the car, pulled away from the car, um, to try to, you know, leave the scene of the accident. Uh, cop car pulls me over. I have so much to drink that I go into a seizure. I go to the hospital, and I'm hospitalized for three days. Um, in Park Royal, which is neither royal nor a park. <laughs> so I don't recommend that you enjoy your time there. If you do, just brush up on your crossword puzzles, and uh, it'll help you pass the time. But... That's what I believe. I mean, that's a pretty extreme example of, hey, Scott, you don't want me in your life? We'll see what a life looks like without me. And so I believe that's what it's talking about when a tormenting spirit from God overwhelms Saul. But in 1 Samuel 18.10, we see David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand. This is like two contrasting worlds here. You have David, this warrior who's just taken out this Philistine. He like held up his head of this dead Philistine on the battlefield. And now he's ministering to this man who's going through this psychotic break. He's playing a harp. He's being calm. He's doing what God has called him to do, which is minister to this man. God's still acting in grace, 
even though Saul's going through this, this crazy time. But Saul has a spear in his hand. David has this harp, and he's ministering him, and Saul has this weapon of murder. So Saul was giving space to all these negative things in his life. He was giving space to this jealousy. He was giving space to this hatred. He was giving space to this anger. And as a result of that, he, he was so angry that he had this spear. And from an, another book that I've been reading called The Untethered Soul, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Jordan enjoys it too. <laughs> I, would, um, I would recommend it. Um, I want to read a passage from that. Imagine that you have a thorn in your arm that directly touches a nerve. When the thorn is touched, it's very painful. Because it hurts so much, the thorn is a very serious problem. It's difficult to sleep because you roll over on it. It's hard to get close to people because they might touch it. It makes your life very difficult. You can't even go for a walk in the woods because you might brush the thorn against the branches. The thorn is a constant source of disturbance, and to solve the problem, you have two choices. The first choice is to look at your situation and decide that since it's so disturbing, when things touch the thorn, you need to make sure that nothing touches it. The second choice is to decide that since it's so disturbing, when things touch the thorn, you need to take it out. Believe it or not, the effects of a choice you will make will determine the course of the rest of your life. This is the one of the core level structural decisions that lay the foundation of your future. So Saul, he has these thorns of anger. He has these thorns of jealousy. He has these thorns of hatred and he's not making any effort to change it. He's walking through those woods. He's, it's, it's getting deeper. There's this thicket that surrounds him and it's just full of thorns. He's not accepting any intervention, despite people warning him. As a result of these negative things he's given space to in his life, these thorns grow. Now, I grew up in a Pentecostal pastor's home loving parents, great family, had some bad experiences. But I had some sexual trauma in my childhood and I carried that thorn for so long. Like I, I went to multiple therapists and I, I said, okay, I forgive this person. I even had discussions with these people face to face and said that I forgived them. But when I thought about the situation, Literally, I would feel a stabbing in my stomach. The experience that I had gone through left this res residue of pain and I clung to it. I clung to those thorns. And because of it, I was giving space to that in my mind, in my heart, in my body, which limited my space to be useful to God. It wasn't like I wasn't helping anybody at all, but there was this big space that was taken up by all this trauma that I was not letting God touch. 
because I didn't know what my identity looked like without the trauma. I didn't know who I was going to be if I wasn't a victim. But things got better, and we'll get to that. <laughs> so we'll talk about this spear. Verse 11, and suddenly he hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. So he hurls this, this, well, he, David's trying to give him grace. David's trying to give him the gift of music that God has bestowed upon his heart to help with those thorns. David, or Saul throws this weapon of murder at him. And Dave, David, um, he dodges out of the way. And Saul, you know, he intends to pin him to the wall with this, this spear. He didn't want to just frighten or wound David. He wanted the spear to deliver a fatal blow. The second half of verse 11, that's a little surprising because it says, but David escaped his presence twice. Right? It's weird because someone throws a spear at me, trying to kill me, I'm probably going to just say, you can't listen to my music anymore. <laughs> I'm going to leave the room <laughs> and I'm not going to, to help you out. No, David, that means David went back because God said, I want you to try, I want to give, show my grace to this man through you. I want you to go back. Even though he knew his life was in danger, God, or David submitted to God and went back because he made space for God to do his will in his life. So God, or David, he went back again. And guess what happens? He gets the spear thrown at him again. Um, and then I don't know what happens, but he didn't go back and play. Um, but just think about this. Like, David had just killed the giant. He could have easily been, well, you missed me twice, now you're going to get it. David knew that he was going to end up in the throne, but he let God take care of that. He's not like, oh, I'm going to take out Saul right now and I'm going to be your king. How many of us are put ourselves in situations where things don't work out as we expect them to and so we're like, that's it, God. I thought you wanted me to do this, but it's not going to work out. So we walk away after that first time. I know sometimes when I've helped out men in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I've had situations where I've been helping out somebody for months and they re relapse the phone calls stop. I've invested hours and days in my life into them, and they disappear. And then they come back to the rooms, and you know what? I've been praying the whole time that they come back. I don't, like, fold my arms and say, well, good luck. I put myself in that situation sometimes where I could probably be hurt again because they might walk away again. And that's happened. I have one guy who walked away four times, but know what? He's doing great now. But I never stopped praying for him. I have had guys that have walked away and not come back that I still pray for today, and it's been years. 
I have to put myself in that situation where I might get hurt doing the will of God, doing what God wants me to do. But God's going to provide somebody to comfort me in those situations. He's going to surround me with people that can support me, somebody that's going to play the harp for me, someone that's going to bring ease to my soul. We're going to go to the top of the scripture now, back to the first verse. And we're going to talk about someone who behaved a lot differently than Saul. We're going to talk about Jonathan. Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan's relationship with David was one of friendship and love. Therefore, Jonathan made space for love in his life rather than jealousy and blame that we see from Saul. As a result of making space for the things, these things God wanted, Jonathan had a heart that was in line with God's will. Again, we have the untethered soul showing up. <laughs> so, imagine if you used relationships to get to know other people rather than to satisfy what is blocked inside of you. If you're not trying to make people fit into your preconceived notions of what you like and dislike, you will find that relationships are not really that difficult. If you're not so busy judging and resisting people based on what is blocked inside of you, you will find that they are much easier to get along with, and so are you. Letting go of yourself is the simplest way to get closer to others. Jonathan's heart was in line with God's heart, and God's heart was for Jonathan to get out of the way and to make David king. So Jonathan let go of himself, removing all agendas he had for the friendship. The friendship wasn't contingent upon what Jonathan needed from David, but rather what God needed from David. So many times we go into relationships and friendships thinking, what can we get that's missing from us and this other person? So many times we get into relationships and friendships thinking to ourselves, what's missing from us that this person can, can fulfill? Our heart should truly be the heart of God for the, what is the heart of God for this person? Not our will, but God's will be done. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. When Jonathan gave David the robe and his armor, he was saying that David would be the next king of Israel. These were the garments of a prince in preparation for David to be king. Jonathan's heart was in line with the heart of God, so there was no jealousy or animosity in his action. Jonathan's like, wait, He's not, he wasn't like, wait, I'm supposed to be king. God said, Jonathan, David is supposed to be king. Jonathan even put up a fight. He's like, here you go. He was doing what God wanted him to do. And he gave it to David. David received the robe and Jonathan's armor. David didn't immediately become king and start ordering around Jonathan. He knew that this would be all be in God's timing. Just as Jonathan gave space to love, humility, and friendship, David makes the choice to give space to patience and total surrender to God. So what, what does it mean to make space? I talked about the thorns and how they can choke you out. 
how they can take up all this room that God wants to use, but we choose to hold on to it. What happens when those thorns are removed? When we ask God to remove those thorns, but we have a lot of work to do in that too. We can't just wake up and say, God, remove this from me and get mad because you're still upset about a situation. My mother was a great woman of God. She was a pastor's wife, and she loved deeply, and she loved dearly. She didn't, it didn't matter who you were. She passed in 2016, but one particular situation stands out to me. The small country church in northern Michigan we used to pastor, there was a man in the church who was not, didn't have that great hygiene. He drank a lot, but he wanted to come to church and he needed to get a ride. My dad would get to church early, set up the church, and my mom would go pick him up every Sunday for years. He did not smell great. He walked in the church and it was thick. <laughs> the air was thick. So my mom would make me sit by her, by the way. <laughs> and this gentleman would sit on the other side. But one thing I remember about my mom is she loved selfless, selflessly. She had a great capacity to love people. When my mom passed away, everything happened so quick that I had... My morning time was limited, and at the funeral and everything happened, and I was left with these thorns of never being able to let go, never being able to say goodbye the way that I needed to. And in this, this therapy session that I had, I remember um, just working through this situation, and my therapist had having me ask, what would God have you to take from your mother as a gift that fills that space, that creates a new identity in you? And, you know, it came to my mind that what I was feeling is a great capacity to love and serve others. That's the new identity I put in place of my thorns. Those thorns that I wouldn't let people touch anymore, the thorns I was trying to close people off, I replaced with a great capacity to love and to serve as a gift from my mother. And, you know, I, I'm not perfect at this every day. I'm not perfect at this every hour. I can only pray every day and ask God the space that all that trauma took up that's finally gone, just fill it with your desire to love, to help heal people, the people nobody wants to touch, the people nobody wants around, the people do want around, everyone, God. So my question to you tonight is, what have you allowed to become a thorn in your life? Is it a situation in the past that you just can't get over? Is it somebody who disappointed you deeply Somebody that hurts you deeply. 
Are you deriving strength from that to help others? Probably not. It's taking up space where God wants to use you to impact this town and this world so much. But you've got the space you're holding on to because you're just, you've got to protect these thorns. Imagine if this thorn could be removed, how much more space would be opened up that will allow you to love people without motive, without agenda. Just like Jonathan. Imagine the space the thorn once took up is now available to be consumed by your calling to help others realize a possibility for abundant life through Christ. Why continue to live with these thorns and this discomfort? Why continue to hinder your usefulness for God? Father, thank you for this evening and this time we've had. I pray that these words I've spoken tonight are the words that you would want me that had that's wanted to fall on these ears tonight. I pray, Lord, that somehow it connected, that it helped make a difference, that it helped make people stop and think tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I got to preview Scott's sermon a little bit because I put the slides together. He sent me over his Bible verses and his notes. And, you know, as I got those, I got a chance, <clears throat> one, to think back to Scott and I's relationship, that park that's not very royal or not very parkish. I remember being there with Scott and praying with him and having that conversation. And, you know, I, was that three years ago, four years ago, whatever it was? <clears throat> And to see Scott today and just the healing that he's had, I hope those words came through tonight and kind of impacted you because him taking out those thorns, and I say thorns with an S because there's multiple thorns that he's having to pull out that you heard just a few of those tonight, and there's other trauma and thorns in his life too that he's had to have Jesus removed, but just to see the healing, and I've told him multiple times over the last couple of months, just what a great spot that I see him in today. It's the best I've ever seen him, and you know, he's become that friend to me that now, now I've got some trauma and some thorns that I'm dealing with, and now he speaks that truth into my life, and so as I thought about that this week, Refuge is always supposed to be in a church that was a hospital. We say a hospital for sinners, a hospital for the broken. And a hospital, what do you do in a hospital? You go to receive healing. And so it's been cool to watch the healing in Scott's life over the last five years. And it's been cool to see the healing in a lot of people's lives in this church. But this week, kind of again, thinking through Scott's sermon and reading those quotes from the book, which look like amazing books, by the way, but as I lay in bed Thursday night and I couldn't fall asleep, you know, I started to just think about all the people in this church and how hard life is. I know I've been in several conversations with you guys uh, over the last couple of months where we're just having this conversation. And all I can say about the situation that you're describing is life is hard. And so as I lay in bed Thursday night, I was unable to fall asleep, and I'm just thinking about everybody in this church, and I'm thinking about my own problems and issues I just started to pray. 
You know, God, I'm praying for that, that friend, that member of refuge who's in prison right now and the, the thorn that he has in his life. And I'm praying for that, that family that is going through some family trauma right now and some relationship issues. And I, I pray for that person with the addiction. And I, I pray for that person that they're having fallout from a divorce that they're having to deal with and the anxiety and depression and that person that has work problems and relationship problems and just lost somebody they love. And I mean, all I could say is life is hard. What happens in hospitals? People come to receive healing, but what happens once you're healed? Then you become somebody that God uses to help others heal, and that's what I also see in Scott's life. We work in a hospital, not just to be healed, but we work on behalf of the great healer, the one that can remove those thorns. As we're going to sing tonight, the way maker, the miracle worker, the one who knows how hard our life is, how much those thorns hurt, and the one who can help us remove those thorns and give us abundant life. So I want you to stand tonight. We're going to sing one last song. And as you do, just, just imagine whatever that trauma is in your life, that thorn that you're dealing with, that negative emotion. I, I don't know what you want to call it, but whatever that is that you're dealing with tonight as we sing just imagine God pulling that out and setting it aside. And then imagine that space opening up as Scott taught tonight. And then what God wants to do with you in that new space that he's given you. Let's sing.